you think about these students that, that came from all of these different countries and they, they're very new to the United States and they don't really have a lot of expectations of what their teacher should be. They don't really have a lot of expectations about what the classroom is or what the school should offer, uh, what it lacks or what it, what it provides um, exactly. So, and so I can start in a very fresh way with them in, in a similar type of way with a lot of non-judgment, a lot of non-expectation. And, and so the connection is very, very natural. And I felt that I was able to connect more deeply with my newcomers. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How might an EL teacher in his dynamic newcomers class react to having a journalist embed herself in their classroom for an entire school year? What partnerships might they form to learn more about students, and what does this tell us about the resources that schools do and do not have at their disposal? What are some of the best things about working with students who come from such a wide array of backgrounds, experiences, and skills? We discuss these questions and much more in our conversation with Eddie Williams. Eddie's newcomers class at Denver's South High School was profiled as part of Helen Thorpe's latest book, entitled The Newcomers. In her book, Thorpe describes Eddie by stating, He was like a gardener, excited by seedlings. Where others might see students with limitations or students who were lagging behind their peers, Mr. Williams saw a room filled with kids who had lived through titanic experiences, teenagers who could do anything at all once they accepted whatever sort of history they had brought with them and grasped the full extent of the opportunity lying ahead. He often told me that he felt lucky to work in a room like this one, a room that spoke of just how big the world was and how mysterious. After speaking with Eddie as a long-awaited follow-up to last season's episode with Helen Thorpe, I think this description is far superior to any bio I could provide. Humble, passionate, and thoughtful, Eddie embodies the kind of educator who helps make a difference in students' lives by seeing all the assets they bring to our schools and communities. Not surprisingly, Eddie and I had a lot to discuss, so this is part one of a two-part series. We'll release part two next week. If you haven't yet heard our conversation with Helen Thorpe, you can find it on Highest Aspirations Season 1, Episode 19, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get started. Eddie Williams, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. This was a necessary follow-up after interviewing uh, the author of The Newcomers, Helen Thorpe, uh, back about a year ago. And so we're really excited to have you on. People have been talking a lot about the book. Um, and, uh, and to have you sort of as the centerpiece along with the students in there on is really, is really great. Let's start off with, uh, with I think, the question that, that was on my mind as soon as you came up in the book as, as a former teacher, and that is that you, know, you were placed in a, in a really interesting position when you were working as a teacher of newcomers at South High School in Denver, mm -hmm. in that Helen Thorpe, this author and journalist, asked to kind of embed herself in your classroom um, and, and write a book about the experience. So what was your, what was your initial reaction to that uh, request or ask? 
I, well, that, that's a really good question. I remember asking Helen, um, what are you going to be looking for? Is, I'm not sure that, that our classroom is going to offer anything that's, that's going to be that impressive, you know? So I'm, I'm just concerned that, you know, I don't want you to, to, uh, to spend time in this classroom and, and sort of have, have us let you down in any way. Um, because, because what I'm doing is I'm trying to help these students um, with their English acquisition, and uh, that's my job. And some days just don't feel that incredible, that amazing. There are moments, but uh, there are a lot of really awkward moments too. Um, like the beginning of the year, I, I think I started the year with two or three students, you know, and Helen uh, sort of documents that, that beginning of the year where it, it just really is not like a regular traditional classroom at all. Even like a traditional ELD classroom, it's so different because um, the newcomer classroom uh, is, is one where we could start with two or three kids and then they come over the course of the school year. And, um, and that's how that was. So it's, it's uh, but she, she uh, just assured me that, no, this is, this is why I'm here. I want to, really go deeper into these students' lives. I want to see what's happening in the classroom, but I'm also going to be following them outside of the classroom. And this is my goal. This is my mission. And I, and I said, oh, okay, that's my mission too, is I would love for the public to know more about who these kiddos are, how amazing they are, uh, what their stories really are, and what we can learn from them, and how we can benefit from them. And I, I, was, I was on board with that, with that mission right away. Yeah, so I can I could definitely relate. I never experienced anything like this before as a teacher, but I can relate to that initial trepidation, feeling like, well, it's just my class. This is what I do. You know, what are you going to learn from it? But um, it sounds like, for lack of a better term, she was able to uh, convince you, and the convincing came from, uh, y like you just said, you being able to sort of amplify these stories, um, which I think is something that has definitely happened. How about your students? How did they? I mean, you said there were only two to three of them as they started. Obviously, these students are are in, in many ways different than sort of traditional students. So maybe they didn't know anything different, but I'm curious how you explained to them why she was there, particularly as the class uh, grew or did she do that? How did that work? Um, and that's, you know, I have to really think about how that happened. Um, I, I, whenever I have someone in my classroom, you know, I, I really like to let students know why. And, uh, and I like to introduce that person to the class and otherwise it can be awkward. Right. So I, I've always done that. And so I know that I, I let my students know who Helen was, why she was in the classroom. And um, I, I can't say exactly, you know, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I, I'm sure that I probably said something like, guys and gals, you are amazing. So Helen is here just to kind of capture that. And so she's going to be writing notes because you're awesome. Look how many languages you speak. English is, is like your third language, you know, English is like your fourth language. And so I, I, and I guess I just do that kind of instinctively to let them know that um, they don't need to feel uh, nervous or uh, no one is, is going to be sort of like there to nitpick them, but, but really just uh, kind of capture those amazing things about them. And, and a lot of my students have enough English to, to, to uh, comprehend a lot of what I just said, you know. Uh, but I will slow down my speech um, a bit more. And, but I'm naturally kind of a, a slower speech communicator. You know, I'm from Southern California, and I don't know if that's that's natural for me. <laughs> but I that's 
I, it seemed it seemed to work. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, I think you know, thinking back to the days when you know you're sort of a new teacher and somebody walks in, whether it's an evaluator or a principal or someone walks in the room, it can be like nerve wracking, not only for the teacher but obviously for the students as well. Thinking, what is going on here? So the ability to um, and the presence of mind to be able to sort of um, explain, you know, what's happening and who this, this person is and taking on an asset based approach, like you mentioned, um, I think is key. And then it sounds like sort of organically over time, at least from reading the book, uh, it became almost like a partnership. Is that the right way to describe it or no? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are at least two different layers to that, that partnership, um, which I, I agree with that. That's, that's correct. Um, one, one is just kind of the sense that what we're doing in the classroom really, it really truly matters and it is a really big deal. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't moments that, uh, that, that don't go perfectly. Um, uh, cause there are moments like that. Um, but I think, I think the students and I got the sense that, uh, that it really is a special thing that, that happens in that classroom over time and little by little, um, not only is there English acquisition happening, but there's um, this community of, of human beings that happens that's that's really unlikely. You know, this teacher, yep. this teacher from California, these students from Congo, from Thailand, from Eritrea, from all over the place. Um, and then the joking, the laughter, the the multi, you know, language sort of conversations and um and it's just real natural. Um, so that's one layer. And then another layer is when uh, Helen and I would talk after the class and, and she would tell me, this is what I noticed. And this is what I, uh, I noticed in the classroom. Tell me more about that. So as you know, as a teacher, it can be really helpful to have that, that other set of eyes in the classroom that kind of cue you into things that are happening. Um, it can you know, also be kind of horrifying at times. It can be. It can. Well... I'm, I'm, I'm half joking. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of teachers out there that kind of struggle with, and I was one of them for a while, the feedback, you know, there's just not that culture in a lot of places of kind of open feedback and another set of eyes on things. That's a hundred percent. Yes, that's a hundred percent. And I, this is my sixth, I'm in my 16th year of teaching right now. So I think, um, after a while, I think a lot of teachers can kind of break through that discomfort, you know, um, Although I did, I did record a, a, a lesson of me, a, I video recorded a lesson of me teaching math intervention at the school that I'm at now, and it was real painful. You know? <laughs> and I, it wasn't that, it, my second set of eyes was me critiquing myself. Yeah. And I think that most teachers are naturally very hard on themselves, probably much harder on themselves than a coach or administrator might be. And, um, and it, it can be painful because and we want the best for our students, you know, and then, and we see things that, man, I need to clean up this. My do now went like seven minutes. Why, why was that the case? I, um, you know, I'm calling on these, these students a lot more and not these others, not enough. And I can't believe like, I'm really falling into that type of pattern, you know? And so, um, that other layer though, um, was those conversations that Helen and I had, and uh, and a lot of those a lot of that was uh, what she noticed in my classroom, but also what she noticed when she went to students' homes and she met with their families and she uh, took um, interpreters with her uh, and had lengthy conversations that I I wasn't able to have myself with them. 
Yeah, let's get into that a little bit. That's one of the questions I had for you. I mean, Helen, you know, she had a unique perspective in your class in many ways. And in one part of the book, she discusses the things she knew about the students that you as their teacher may not have and how, you know, she was the only person in the room who had hired interpreters simply to understand the students and their families better. And you just got into that a little bit, but I'm curious about how that insight um, helped you maybe understand your students better and gave you kind of, for lack of a better term, maybe a leg up on, on understanding what some of their challenges were and some of their assets as well. Yeah. So it really, um, it, in a lot of ways, it confirmed some things about the students that I, I thought might be issues. Um, so a couple of students from Iraq, uh, you know, I was really concerned about one student that was nonverbal um, for really most of the, the school year. And, um, and so Helen was able to tell me what was going on, why this student, um, she was the older of the, the two uh, sisters from Iraq. And Helen was able to tell me some of the insight into that story and why that older sister um, maybe had not um, moved on from some of the traumatic experiences that they had, you know, in Iraq. And I could, I could sort of guess that from my interactions in the classroom, knowing that she's the older sister, having a sense of what they went through, having known that they lost their father, and they didn't have an answer to that either. Um, it's just, their father was just missing. So the older sister seemed to take on this responsibility for their family because it was the two sisters and mom here in the United States now. And I knew mom was really struggling older sister seemed to take on the, that, that responsibility for the three of them, the majority of that responsibility. And that, that's a real tough thing they were dealing with. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So, I mean, you're able to, like, you, you know, you mentioned, I think almost that, I don't think you used the word speculation. I think you used the, you were able to kind of confirm some of this uh, suspicion, you know, what, what you thought was going on. I'm curious, you know, oftentimes, like, we as teachers, you know, rely on our sort of senses and and our, our power of observation and insight to kind of glean information about students who maybe, in this case, are nonverbal or don't speak the language well or just don't really open up. But Helen had this ability to, to go to their homes with interpreters, um, and that helped you sort of confirm um, some of these things. I, I'm curious, you know, this this may be a little bit of a not controversial question, but a difficult question, but I want to get into it. What, what, what does this tell you about the resources that, that are or are not available um, in schools like South and many other schools? I mean, after having the experience with Helen and the resources that, that she brought with her, um, what, what would you advocate for as an ELL teacher? What were the things that she had that you didn't have before her that really helped you and that you feel like are needed? Um, I think so what Helen, what Helen provided, um, in, in sort of that way where she would go to students' homes and learn more about them is sort of like she was a caseworker. She was like a social worker that, that she was, but she would be a social worker if that was her job. She would have been a social worker that was just assigned to those students, you know? And so, um, so she had the interpreter, uh, go with her. And so she would hire these people and, and it's not easy to find people that that speak uh, these languages. Tigrinha, you know, um, Portuguese probably more common, but uh, even Russian um, and Arabic um, interpreters. Not really easy to find these folks. I think for all school districts. And then, um, so I think that's a really important resource that that 
was kind of a side benefit of Helen doing this work uh, to me. But there are also a lot of other great resources at South that, that we took advantage of. Um, so we had uh, partnerships with, with a, a couple different groups um, that really, really benefited us. So we had um, Jewish Family Services is, uh, is, a, is, a, is an organization that provided a therapist for us. And so this therapist, uh, we had three different therapists when I was there, and they usually had a, an art therapy sort of background. And what they would do is they would take my students in small groups, and they would use art therapy for students to express themselves, express their feelings about being in the United States, uh, feelings about who they were, or feelings maybe even of loss or of trauma that they've experienced. That's my understanding of, of that work. And um, Pauling Ng was, uh, was that person that was, uh, it was really amazing, that, that art therapist through Jewish Family Services. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And so I appreciate you mentioning this, the, the things that you did have. It's one thing that's important as well. I didn't want to lead with, you know, with, with what you didn't have available. I just thought it was interesting. You know, you, you have that experience of, of having that as a resource. And it's just interesting to see sort of in schools that maybe um, don't have that what they do. But the idea of, of therapy and art therapy, I think is crucial for a lot of students and particularly maybe this group of students um, as well. Absolutely. So, so I, I want to kind of come back to you a little bit as a centerpiece and you're portrayed very much and you seem uh, based on the conversations that we've had uh, like a very humble guy, like many, many teachers are. Uh, so I'm going to put you on the spot with a bit of a, a quote here that, that I think talks about you uh, for, for, for who you are and the work that you do. And I want to get your reaction to it. So Helen dedicates much of the first chapter of the book to describing you and how you worked with students. And one quote that really stuck out with me was this one. Bear with me. I'm going to read it for a second. It was like a gardener excited by seedlings where others might see students with limitations or students who are lagging behind their peers. Mr. Williams saw a room filled with kids who had lived through Titanic experiences, teenagers who could do anything at all. Once they accepted whatever sort of history they had brought with them and grasped the full extent of the opportunity lying ahead. He often told me that he felt lucky to work in a room like this one, a room that spoke of just how big the world was and how mysterious. That's on page 35 of the book in case anybody wants to find it. Um, but what some might find interesting about this quote is that the, world, the word language is not even mentioned in there. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious what, you, what your reaction was when you read quotes like these and how you think uh, it applies to the work that EL teachers do on a daily basis. I think it's... Uh... I think it's, it's, it's knowing, and I think most teachers have this sense that, uh, this intuition that connecting with students um, is really first and foremost uh, the thing that we, that we do. We're, as teachers, we're helpers, we connect with, with students, and, um, and so that's why the, the content of the learning, it's, it's really secondary to that, that initial connection, and it involves trust, and it involves... Um, uh, just being non-judgmental with students um, as much as possible. And, um, and it was actually for me working with newcomers, that was very, very easy to do because it was, um, you think about these students that, that came from all of these different countries and they, they're very new to the United States and they don't really have a lot of expectations of what their teacher should be. They don't really have a lot of expectations about what the classroom is or what the school should offer, uh, what it lacks or what it, what it provides um, exactly. So 
And so I can start in a very fresh way with them in, in a similar type of way with a lot of non-judgment, a lot of non-expectation. And, and so the connection is very, very natural. And I felt that I was able to connect more deeply with my newcomers than I could when I taught social studies in the suburbs, you know, suburbs of Denver. Because, because there was a blank slate there almost for both of you. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I saw that. It's really as- interesting. That's not something that I ever experienced as a teacher. Like there was an expectation that I taught Spanish kids came in. I've had Spanish class before. Yeah. Or I have an idea of what it was. Yeah. Talk more about that. Well, when I taught, so when I, I taught in Douglas County, which is a, a suburban school district just south of the Denver area. And it's right, it's really in between um, Denver and Colorado Springs, you know, and it encompasses like parts of Littleton, Colorado, and uh, Highlands Ranch, Colorado. And so I taught social studies for many years in so general education, social studies, high school. And I did feel that there was this expectation of me as a teacher, um, you have to sort of entertain the students, you know, don't be, don't be boring, make it as fun as possible. And I remember teaching economics to juniors and seniors. And I remember, you know, I was teaching this lesson. And I'm sure I wasn't the best economics teacher, but I, I really enjoyed it. And I remember teaching this lesson down there. And I, um, and I called on a student. And the student, the student, like, sort of looked up from his desk. And he, he, he was so honest. And he just said, I, I just don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not interested. And he said this out loud and, and there's like 30 students in the class. And I looked up and I was just, I was sort of shocked. But then I was also sort of, well, what is it? What, what else is a teenager supposed to say? You know, how would I have felt at this time? And so I, I think I, I think I responded more in the sort of disappointment, sort of like authoritarian teacher kind of way of, sure. well, let me tell you why you should care, you know? And I would have done the same. Yeah. And that's, uh, and I, I'm sure I was like, I took it a little personally too. Yep. And, uh, and so I fell into that, but, but that really didn't happen with newcomers. You know, it really didn't. It was, I never had a student say, um, I just don't care. I'm not interested, but I would have, I would have students like, Really, a lot of like body language, you know, like they would scratch their heads, they would think, they would really try and they would like shake their head maybe if they didn't comprehend what I was saying. And I would, I would say like, oh, no, no, good, 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 good. Um, and then I might show a picture or I might say they would like shake their head or like kind of scratching their head and no, uh, and then they would smile, you know. And the smile is sort of like, I don't understand, but I'm still present. Like, yeah. And that's, that's what those students, that's what their reactions would be almost all the time, you know? And, um, and it would make me laugh. And, and I would say, that's okay, that's okay. And let's, let's look at a picture. Let me uh, say it in a different way. Let me write it in a different word here. Or maybe we can go to a translation. Or, oh, let's ask so-and-so in the class, uh, can you tell us in Arabic, what is, what is the word for that? You know, what is the word for school in Arabic? Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's like these kinds of breakthroughs, um, it's, it's because the kids are there. They're, they're, they're not disconnecting and they're not applying some judgment to me as a teacher or to the lesson or to the, the process of uh, English acquisition. Um, it's, it's just a really beautiful, very positive approach um, that I would see from students consistently. Yeah, you know, and like, 
this is exciting for me to hear because I, I, I imagine that there are many other teachers that have been, that are in your position or have been in your position who have felt that same thing, but I've never heard it really verbalized like that, that it's a clean slate on each side. There's not, a, because you say, well, it's not a lot of expectations. You almost look at that. That almost sounds negative, but it's not. It's a way that you can make these connections sort of right away. And I wonder if for some people that are listening, this is a bit of a breakthrough. I hope it is. My assumption is that most people who have been in a classroom like yours totally get that and see that. But I yep. think to express it in that way um, and to define it in that way um, is, is really important. P- particularly like, you know, and this gets into, um, into my next question, which is about this, this whole thing that you're talking about, students from, from lots of different places who speak lots of different languages. There's just been this like new term that's come out. I don't know if you've heard it called super diversity. You read articles. Most teachers are like, what is that word? I have, I, that's what I deal with every day. But like when you read scholarly articles, they're calling the literally super diversity. Um, and, and everybody, you know, wants to talk about it as it's, it's an asset. It's at, we have to figure out like how how to make it an asset based approach. And so at one point in the book, Helen says, this is on page 159. She says at the midway point in the school year, um, this had become Mr. Williams central challenge, teaching English to one classroom filled with 17 students who spoke 10 different home languages and exhibited vastly different abilities to comprehend his lessons. Yeah. And it, at first glance, this seems like an obvious challenge, but based on your experience working with newcomers um, from all over the world, which you did there, um, how, how do you think schools in our society in general might take more of an asset-based approach to this whole super diversity thing that's this, this term that's been coined lately? Um, I, yeah, that's a good question because I don't think about, when I, when I hear that, that statement, that sentence you just read or cited, I think I I didn't feel negative at all to me, you know, because that, that broad range of skills, that, that means that we have a really heterogeneous uh, array of, of skills and that's beautiful, right? That means parts of my lesson are going to really um, be targeted more towards the, the, the kids that are where the comprehension is low, maybe they're maybe even nonverbal. But I have all these other kiddos that we can use as resources in the room, but I can also use other parts of the lesson to stretch those kiddos that are ready for a bit more. Um, maybe they're, they've scored higher in access, but they're still in the newcomer classroom, and I can push them a bit more. And, and I'll do that through different parts of the lesson, you know, and, and teachers have all sorts of ideas about how to use different uh, modalities of language. Make, maybe that's where the writing pushes some students a bit more, or maybe that's where my my pairings uh, with my students, uh, being really uh, mindful about how I do that, how I pair those kiddos, how that, that can help certain students. Maybe that, that's also uh, the pairings or small groups by home language possibly, or maybe heterogeneous by language. Um, yeah, I don't, it doesn't seem like a, like a drawback to me at all. Um, because I know kids are going to be excited about learning, and, it, and it, that's because I'm excited about it. I'm excited. I know they're going to be excited. So it it was just, yeah. I'm going to, so I'm going to ask you this question. Maybe I wouldn't ask it if I didn't sort of already have a, a, a relationship with Helen. I've spoken with her a few times and she came and spoke with us here at Elevation. So I feel like I can ask you this question. Is, is, is challenge the wrong word that she used in there when she says, Mr. Williams, central challenge teaching English to one classroom filled with 17 students who speak 10 different languages. Um, you know, and, and that maybe that's her perception of it. And it's certainly many people's perception of it. But to you, is that, is that the central challenge at that point in the year? 
Um, probably. So I don't, I don't disagree with that. I don't, and I don't disagree with the word challenge. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's the challenge is I don't know. The challenge is good. I embrace, I think for me as a teacher, it's just that kind of challenge. I welcome more that, that kind of challenge than I did teaching economics in the suburbs where kids at any moment would just be like, I, I just don't care. <laughs> No. Good, good place also, to, to resurface that. that right, again. because there are there are other and so that other challenge with teaching economics to mostly white students and and students that had you know uh, you know really solid educational experiences here in the U.S. and um, they uh, you know there there could be like helicopter parents involved with that part of that challenge maybe other parts of that challenge is you know, someone walks into your room and they're really looking for, you know, what standard is being hit in this economics lesson at any given moment in time. And that's, if that standard isn't being hit, then, well, hey, Mr. Williams, I've, I've got to ding you maybe on this evaluation. That, that, that sort of challenge uh, kind of falls away from me when I'm mm -hmm. with my newcomers. And, and like I said, uh, there's more primacy put on connecting with kids, having fun, and then the language, the language happens more naturally. And so that, that to me is a much more natural type of teaching with less sort of like bureaucratic pressure. And that, sure. that's the challenge that I think teachers don't like. Yep. That's the kind of challenge that, you know, when I advocate for teachers and the work of teachers, um, a lot of it has to be done with um, keeping that, that bureaucratic sort of stuff at bay because not only does it add to our stress level as teachers, but it also could get in the way of our, our freedom to connect with students and just to, be, just to be human beings with them. We'll talk much more with Eddie about connecting with newcomer families, working with diverse groups of students, and much more in part two of this series. Be sure to subscribe to Highest Aspirations wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss this episode or any of the others we have coming up. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.